0: 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to throw you a curveball, though. Before we get into that text, there's two New Testament passages that are going to set this up. John 9 and Ephesians 1. So hold your place in 2 Kings and turn to John 9 first and then Ephesians 1. Once you've got John 9, would you stand to your feet if you're able? Let's read two passages that will help set this up and set it up theologically as well. John 9, this is the setting of the man born blind that gets healed. And Jesus uh, goes to him and he says, this is John 9.38. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped Jesus. John nine thirty-eight. So much for people saying that Jesus isn't God, because he receives worship. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, John 9.39, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to Jesus, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Ouch! And then to Ephesians chapter one, Paul, writing the opening chapter to the church at Ephesus, he's gone through their position in Christ in the opening chapters that they believed they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So these are believers, and then he says these words in fifteen of Ephesians one one fifteen. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you in your love for all the saints. Do not cease, Ephesians 1.16, giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Father, thank you that we can dive into the word of God and see this reality of open the eyes of my heart. Lord, I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up as the song says. I want to see you in your glory. I want my eyes to be on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Many things distract, Lord. We are in a spiritual battle. We need your eyes. We have the mind of Christ, but I believe we need to appropriate that. That means we need to engage it. We need to have our eyes moving away from other things and moving to our Lord, to his word, to your truth. And Lord, would you illumine our eyes this morning as we dive into a text, a very famous text well-known about the Syrian army coming to the city where Elisha is surrounding it. And the the famous words, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Well, Lord, it it is our prayer that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word. We might see you. We might understand who we are, how to fight the battle And know that the battle ultimately belongs to you and we are victors in it. So we give you thanks. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have you ever had a conversation? Maybe someone posed a question like this to you. Do you see what's happening here? I remember I was on a phone call one time with a brother in the Lord and that's what he raised to me. Do you see what's happening here? And he was challenging me to, to have spiritual insight into a situation. Maybe you've said this to yourself before or maybe even to a friend or brother or sister. Am I seeing this correctly? Whenever we ask questions like that or have questions posed to us like that, the the issue is really down to one word. It's the idea of discernment. And discernment is seeing things correctly or seeing things as God sees them. That's discernment. We all deeply desire to discern what God has. Sometimes it can be difficult, especially in the ups and downs of this world. So here's the text. It's 2 Kings 6, beginning in verse eight, and it reads this way. Now, the king of Aram, Aram is another name for Syria, the nation just to the north of Israel, even today, was warring against Israel. And he counseled with his servants. You could think of his military staff here saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. Now the war between Syria and Israel was already old at this point. And you and I, from an application standpoint for the New Covenant Church, are in a war. We're in an age-old spiritual war that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter three, when the enemy comes into the garden, questions God's word, tries to stumble our first parents and does do that. And their eyes were opened and they saw you know, good and evil and they were hiding from God and all of that. God was trying to protect them. The enemy went in there and stumbled. And of course, they fell into sin and we know the rest of the story. An age-old conflict does exist for the church. It's a spiritual war and we have spiritual weapons to fight that warfare and those weapons Are found in Ephesians chapter 6. They are laid out to give you uh, insight into the typical ways that the enemy attacks you. Here's an example. You have a belt of truth because the enemy is a liar. You have a shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery arrows of the wicked one because he attacks your faith. He wants to get you to doubt or question, etc., You have a breastplate of righteousness to protect your heart from going in the wrong direction. You have a helmet of salvation, et cetera. Y'all get it? The typical ways the enemy attacks, the mind, the heart, et cetera, the feet, the direction we walk, we have spiritual armor from our God. And our Father loves us and he knows what we need and he knows the enemy very well, better than we do, amen? And so he's provided spiritual weapons for a spiritual battle. Well, this age old uh, story is going to give us some insight into our battle. And in verse eight, you can see that the king of Syria was warring against Israel and he was telling his leadership, I'm gonna set up my camp in this place or that place. And the first thing I wanna put before you if you're taking notes is you need to know where the enemy typically tries to set up camp in your life, amen? If you're a note taker, where does he typically try to set up camp in your life? Could it be in the areas of maybe you lose your patience? Maybe it's areas of anger. Maybe it's a typical temptation that you fight. The same carrot dangles before you and you find yourself falling to that. In Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let him set up camp in your life, amen? So if there is unresolved anger, if there's bitterness, a root of bitterness can develop, you've got to deal with that. You've got to uproot that or allow the Lord to uproot that. And don't sit there and, you know, dwell on it and chew on it because it's going to destroy you and those around you. What are the places in your life where you need to be aware of and set up guard? I want to show you a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'd flip over there, let me set it up as you turn. So in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church, of course, and they had a lot of issues. And there's two possibilities for the backdrop of this text. One, the man that's being dealt with here was opposing Paul publicly, questioning Paul's apostleship, and even tried to publicly shame Paul. And the man had to be dealt with and kicked out of the church. And the church stood against him. The second possibility is that this is the man from 1 Corinthians 5 who was in this terrible sexual sin. The church was kind of waving the banner of grace over it. Paul says you shouldn't do that. He needs to be out. And he got excommunicated. That's the older view of the setting. Now, This will make sense in a moment as you take it. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 2. Look at verse 5. The key verse is 11, but I want you to see the setting. But if any has caused sorrow, 2 Corinthians 2, 5, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Something happened where the church stood against this individual. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you, to reaffirm your love for him. Let's pause for a moment. Church discipline, tough love is all a biblical reality. Matthew 18 tells us how to deal with people who are in sin. We go to them privately. You should study that passage if you don't know it. It's Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And it gives you steps. But those steps are all intended for restoration. They're all intended to bring someone out of a realm of danger into a realm of safety. This this applies to parenting, of course. We know sometimes we have to set very tough boundaries for our kids. We call it tough love. Dobson called it tough love. But at some point, we need to know when to lift the hand, right? We need need to know when enough is enough, lest someone is overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We need to know when grace needs to be uh, sprinkled into the situation. And here's what Paul says. For to this end, verse 9... Also I wrote so that I might uh, put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have, forgiven, I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. That's how we all live our lives, in his presence. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, if you think about that passage, which you may have heard before, here's the context. When we don't extend forgiveness, when stuff goes on too long, when the enemy sets up camp and there's no grace and no forgiveness, we can stay stuck there and the enemy can work in the realm of unforgiveness, he can work in the realm of unresolved anger, etc., now, these are some of the things, if you turn back to 2 Kings, we are not to be ignorant of. In, in fact, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes, and he has schemes. The Greek word there is methodia, where we get our English word methodology or method. He has methods. Each one of you prepare for a week, and you have methodology, right? You, maybe you pack a lunch. Maybe you plan your calendar. Maybe you gas up at a certain place. Maybe, you know, you time your your alarm etc cetera, etc well the devil has typical schemes to round out the point where does he normally set up camp in your life i will tell you you'll probably see some repetitious attacks and when they come are you resolved to see them for what they are understand what they are and then do something about them put on the armor of god see them for what they are etc And so the war happened. And in verse nine, it says, and the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. The man of God is Elisha here, the prophet. And he said, beware that you do not pass this place for the Arameans or the Syrians are coming down there. In other words, the prophet had insight from God and he warned the king of Israel, they're coming down. This is where their camp's gonna be. Don't go down there. If you go there, there's going to be trouble. If you're taking notes, here's the second point. If you go there, there's going to be trouble. Have you ever had a moment where you heard a little voice in your head saying, Don't go there? And you said, perhaps in reply, Oh, it'll be different this time. I know i fell, fallen to this sin 997 times, but this time, it will be different. I won't hit my head on that dead end street. I won't fall. I won't have a huge goose egg bruise on my forehead. It will be different. I declare it. Oh, no, it won't. So don't go there. If you're in a typical way of communication where you, you see it sliding down and the, you know, the light's coming on, pull out, pull up, pull up, and you're like, don't go there. There are some things that you just have to avoid because the enemy sets traps. And there's nothing new under the sun. They're the same old things, but you've got to see them for what they are. And the good news is that you have a prophetic voice. Here, you have a preacher preaching the word of God, Back in the day, this was Elisha the prophet speaking to the king of Israel, warning him, beware, beware. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.2 to the Christian church there in Philippi, beware of the dogs, beware of a false gospel. Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Warning is a biblical thing. Watch out, beware. Shane and I were talking this week and He said, imagine if the church's voice was taken out of our country. What would our country look like? Now, we know that there's a lot of kooky things that go on in some corners of the church world. However, we're talking about the authentic church's voice in our culture. Our culture needs our voice. They need the prophetic voice. I mean, they need the word of God being spoken clearly from pulpits around America. We need it. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, and by the way, all the kings of Israel were corrupt. They were all idolaters. And yet the king of Israel was smart enough to heed the voice of the prophet. We'll see in a second. It says in Psalm 121, verse 4: Behold, he who keeps Israel should neither sleep, uh, slumber nor sleep. 124, 121, 4 of Psalms. And then this is Peter's famous words: be of sober spirit, be on the alert, beware. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering, you could even say of temptation, are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone in this battle. And so the king of Israel, verse 10, sent someone, the new king James says, to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. The ESV reads this way. So the king of Israel checked on the place where the the Syrian camp would be set up for war, indicated by Elisha, the man of God, time and again. So notice more than once, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. I'm sure you can see the point, right? The prophetic word comes, the truth comes from the prophet, And the king heeded the warning. And he knew that the Syrians would be set up in this place to take him out in Israel. And he guarded himself more than once, more than twice. This is our battle, brethren, amen? We've got to be on our guard. We've got to know the typical ways, the potholes, the stumbling blocks, and just watch out for them because they are there and the devil does have his methods. So walk wisely, stay on guard. Know where the enemy typically likes to set up camp in your life. Don't give him a foothold. I think you can put that all together. Now, the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and he said to them, will you tell me which one, which of us is for the king of Israel? Okay, wait a minute now. This guy knows every move I make, every step I take, he's watching, he knows. Is this place bugged? Because it's really bugging me. There's a proverbial fly on the wall, there's a spy in the camp. How else can you explain what's going on? Now the king of Syria cannot think in spiritual terms like, you know, the God of the Bible is revealing this stuff to the prophet, He thinks in worldly terms and we can't blame him, right? There must be a spy here. There's there's some plant here where inside information is being given away. Now, back up for a second. Those of you who are with us in chapter five, we read the story of the healing of Naaman, the Syrian commander. If the chronology follows, and it doesn't always follow exactly chapter to chapter in this particular book, Naaman has gone to Elisha the prophet with leprosy The prophet has given him a remedy by which he can be healed. He goes into the Jordan River. He dips seven times and he comes out and his skin is like the skin of a baby, a little child. And he declares, 2 Kings 5.15, now I know there is no other God but the God of Israel, amen? How is it that the king of Syria doesn't know this? How is it that he doesn't know this story about the healing? How is it that he hasn't been in a Bible study with Naaman, the Syrian commander? Amen? You would think that maybe they would be curious, like, well, if he got healed in the Jordan and Elisha gave the remedy and the God of Israel is the true God and there's no God beside him, why don't they know this? But people are stubborn. And oftentimes they're given light after light and they don't open their hearts, And so a natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him because, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned or appraised. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. So he was as blind as his God. His God was Ramon or Rimon. And, you know, the false gods, the idols have eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear. And those who make them will be like them. And so that's the king of Syria. But he's upset, and you can understand why. And one of his servants, verse 12, said, No, my lord, O king, there's no spy here, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king the words that you speak in your bedroom. And all God's people said, Ruh-roh, in my bedroom? Oh, that's a problem. Hopefully it's not a problem for you. Hopefully your whole life, is pleasing to the Lord, amen. You don't have any skeletons that are gonna fall out of the closet when you open them. But this is what's happening. And one of the servants of Syria knows about Elisha. So there's knowledge. No, here's what's going on. This prophet in, a, in Israel with a double portion of Elijah's spirit, he's given insight into the king. This is what's going on. And so Ben-Hadad II is probably the king. Of this time, And you have to ask the question, what kept the king from knowing about Elisha, hearing Naaman's testimony, pride, I don't know. But Psalm 3310 puts it this way, the Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. And so the God of Israel is protecting his people. And so this king said, go and see where he is that I may send and take the, the idea is seize or capture or even kill him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. So find out where he is, and we're going to send uh, a group to, to deal with this guy. Now, in chapter 1 of 2 Kings, another king named Ahaziah tried to take Elijah. Uh, he tried to bring him in, and Elijah was sitting on the top of the hill. And you all know what happened there, right? He sent the 50 with the captain, and, the, and all of a sudden, hey, man of God, come down, if I'm a man of God. Let fire come down. And you guys all know what happened, right? A couple groups get fried. And the third captain comes and says, Oh, Elijah, <laughs> let my life be precious in your sight. I know you're a man of God. Would you please just, you know, be nice? <laughs> right? And then he went with them. Why is it that these kings aren't learning the lesson? Why is it that we often don't learn the lesson? And so he, he sends this group. Now think of the irony here. This guy knows every move the king makes. He knows where he sets up camp. He knows his strategy. Do you think he doesn't know when you're coming for him? But that's how silly people can be with God, etc. They'll fight God tooth and nail. And so he's told, okay, this, this prophet is in Dothan. Dothan, if you're taking notes, literally means two wells, it's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem, going up from Jerusalem. About 10 to 12 miles north of the capital of Israel, which at that time was Syria, or I'm sorry, Samaria, and then Syria's up from there. So Dothan is the place of two wells. I have an archaeology study Bible in my office. Just got it, and it talks about an excavation that happened in Dothan uh, starting in 1953. And what they dug up here was uh, administrative buildings, uh, a a bunch of bins and storage uh, rooms and facilities, ovens, common household pottery, large administrative building containing over 100 large storage bins. Uh, You can look this up if you want to see the location. It's not like a terribly impressive picture, but it's the name D-O-T-H-A-N, Dothan Dothan. And you can see a picture at bibleplaces.com, an overhead picture. But this has been excavated and they've seen uh, the uh, administrative kind of materials dating to about this time. So this is where the prophet is. And now they're going to go and get him at this place of the two wells and try to take him out. And so he sent horses and chariots, 14, a great army there. It could be a NIV, a strong force, like more like a band or a marauding band. We'll see later. But they came by night, surrounded the city. So this is where the prophet is. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, perhaps to get some water at one of those wells, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, What shall we do? The most modern version of the New American Standard says, this is hopeless, my master. What are we to do? Now, can you imagine? You get up first thing in the morning, you haven't even had a cup of coffee or your Cheerios or anything. You're in your PJs. You wipe your eyes, you're gonna go get a cup of water and all of a sudden you look up and Syrian forces have surrounded the entire area and it's you and the prophet of God. Now, what would you do? Would you say, "Uh uh-oh, we're done for? Would you mouth the words, it's hopeless? Some of you may have said that recently. I know there's a lot going on in our world. There's a lot going on in families represented here. And maybe you've felt like you're surrounded by the enemy. You're surrounded by bad news, difficult circumstances. You've looked at the world, whatever it may be. And maybe you've said something like this. And maybe you didn't say it out loud. Maybe you said it in your soul. This is hopeless. But Jesus Christ is our hope. And the hope of Christ is the anchor of our souls. That's Hebrews 6.19. Amen. We're never hopeless in Christ. We are filled with endless hope in Christ. So don't despair. But I will say if I were there in my pajamas and I looked around, I'm not sure I would do much different. I think I would say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we gonna do now? And the prophet, representing here what Jesus said to his disciples many times, the servant said, this is hopeless. The prophet said, don't be afraid. So he answered, 16, do not fear. For those who are with us are more more than those who are with them. We got them right where we want them. And the servant's looking around going, what? What in the world are you talking about? Now, I love the confidence of Elisha because Elisha saw what the servant couldn't see. And let me tell you something very important right at this moment. If you want to see more clearly into spiritual realities, you have to spend time in spiritual things. Amen? There is a one-to-one correspondence between time spent with the Lord in worship, in his word, in fellowship, and how much you see or you don't see. You will be largely blind to the ways of God and the things of God unless you are in the things of God. And the enemy will do everything he can to keep you from that. So Elisha said, don't be afraid. The power of heaven, you could put it this way, is on our side. You and I don't have to be afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound thinking, or a sound mind, amen? We've got to see things with the mind of Christ. And though we have the mind of Christ as believers, I believe it's something we still need to appropriate. What do I mean by that? I mean, we need to make sure we're putting on the mind of Christ by getting into the things of Christ. It's not just an automatic that you're going to see everything this way. Practicing the presence, walking with the Lord, you get the idea. I want to turn you to a, a couple of encouraging psalms. Hold your place in 2 Kings. We'll return in a moment. Psalm 27, a few of the psalms. So psalms are medicine for the soul, right? And David wrote a lot of them in difficult moments of life. Psalm 27, you'll notice is a psalm of David. It reads this way. The Lord is my light and my salvation, 27.1. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 27.2. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host in camp or an army deploy against me, if you have a new living, it says, though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. There's Elisha right there, right? Right? confident in the Lord. Turn over to Psalm 56. And let me ask you the question, what are you afraid of today? What's causing you to stay up at night? What's causing you to bite your fingernails and doubt and fear? Psalm 56 verse 9 reads this way, then my enemies will turn back, 56 9, in the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise in the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then over to Isaiah chapter 12, a little bit more to your right. This is a beautiful section of scripture with a beautiful promise. Isaiah 12, look at verse two. It says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God, Isaiah 12, 2, is my strength and song, and he's become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the wells or springs of salvation. That's Isaiah 12, 2 and 3. You can see the servant going to the well, being afraid. But when we go to the wells of salvation, when we drink the living water in, it quells our other fears, amen? Amen. And so when we're drinking in the things of God, we see things from heaven's eyes. We don't get tunnel vision caught up just in the moment or the flesh or all of that stuff. And so Elisha is gonna pray. Back to 2 Kings chapter six. What would your prayer be at this moment? I can tell you what mine would be. Lord, get us out of this one. (laughs) And I'd probably say it really loud. How? Right? Could you bring down a protective shield right now in the name of Jesus? Better than that. Elijah prayed for fire. Why not now? Why not right here? Call fire. Consume the enemy. But he prays none of that. You know what he prays? Elisha prayed 17. Oh Lord, I pray. Open his eyes that he may see. Maybe we need to pray that more. You know, you may be witnessing to someone right now and they they feel like, you know, they're just a stone wall, not open to the things of God. Maybe we need to pray more. Open their eyes that they may see. Maybe we need to pray that more for ourselves. Oh, Lord, help me to see what you want me to see in these situations. Well, he prays that. Open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold... The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All of a sudden he looked again and spiritual realities and what appears to be an angelic army, much similar to the horses and chariots of fire that came when Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind in in the early chapters of 2 Kings. Amen? The same angelic army on call there, they were already there, there, he just needed to see them. And here's something else that struck me this week. That army doesn't lift a finger in this whole account. They do nothing. The Lord blinds the army, we'll see in a second. They never do a thing, but they're there. And perhaps that's the most important thing we need to know is that heaven is on our side, amen? Amen. Angels are ministering spirits. Hebrews 1.14, come to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Do I see angels all the time? No. But I know by faith that they're there. And here is the issue before us. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Psalm one nineteen eighteen 18 and 19. At this point, says one writer, The Lord is defending Elisha from death by the same instrument with which Elijah was protected from death and taken to heaven. Such awareness of God's power must have soothed the servant's shattered nerves. And so all of a sudden, the prayer is simply this. May he see with the eyes of faith because we walk by faith and not by sight. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as the substance of things not yet realized or not yet seen. And even Moses operated as seeing him who is unseen. This is what makes faith challenging, no doubt, because I want to see, I want to touch, I want to feel. But the Lord says, no, I want you to trust me. Even when you don't get a revelation of the unseen realm, I am here. I will never leave you or forsake you. And the power of heaven, if you belong to Christ, is on your side. This is a good time for an amen or a hallelujah or something. Amen? Amen. Those who trust in the Lord, Psalm 125, verse 1, are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forever. Psalm 125, 1 and 2. This will sound familiar. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. Paul prayed for illumination, and all of a sudden, you know, Elisha prays, open his eyes, and hears this huge spiritual army. We got more for us than are for them. And that's something that you can own for yourself today. The question is, will you walk in it? Will you let fear get the best of you? Or will you walk by faith? Now, when I say this, I'm preaching to myself. Because we all have challenges to our faith. And so when they came down to him, the army began to approach 18 Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, now the opposite prayer, strike this people with blindness, I pray. And so the Lord struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. The army does nothing, but the Lord strikes the Syrian army, the angelic army does nothing with blindness or maybe hazed their vision, I don't know for sure, but they get struck just like it happened at Sodom, at Sodom, and Nehemiah 4.20 says our God will fight for us. Listen to Second 2 Chronicles 20.15. Listen all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, don't fear or be dismayed because of the great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Amen? See, we, we know the verses, right? We gotta walk in the reality. And so Elisha said to them, This is not the way. Now they're stumbling around, either fully blind or their vision is hazed over. Nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria, which is the capital city at the time of Israel. Now get the irony. Elisha says, Oh, this, come this way, I'll take you to the man that you're seeking. Now it's not a lie. Because the man that they were seeking was leading them. They just didn't know it. It reminds me of a line in a movie. These are not the droids that you are looking for. (laughs) I think that may have been stolen from this text. This is not the way, nor is this the city. So they follow him. I mean, isn't it amazing? It's almost like Elisha has them on a leash. (whistles) And the Syrian army is like stumbling around. 10 to 12 mile trek to the capital city of Israel where the king would be, the military headquarters, all of it. And he brought them there. And it came about when they had come into Samaria that Elisha said, oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden their eyes are opened again and they go, wah, wah. <laughs> And they're in the middle of the enemy territory with military headquarters etc. And this is how the Lord fights our battles. He can turn it around because that's who he is. But here's something that I think many of us are thinking of and I want to share some thoughts from Jaybern and McGee. He says these words in his commentary. The question now arises Is this the stated policy of God in dealing with his own? Well, I've discovered that a great many Christians today have become great escape artists. They're a sort of spiritual Houdini. They can tell you about miraculous instances of God delivering them and leading them. But many other saints have to bow their heads in shame and say, I've had no experience and I have no such leading from God. It must mean that either I am out of touch with him Or he is not for me at all. My friend, says McGee, let's go back to Dothan. And remember, Dothan was that place I told you about the excavations. Dothan is only mentioned one other place in the entire Bible. And you know what story it is? It's the story of Joseph. And Joseph was going to go to his brothers at Dothan. And he meandered his way over there, 17 years of age, and you know that his brothers hated him with a passion. They wanted to kill him. They end up throwing him in a pit, they sell him into slavery, which Javern and McGee describes as what would be a living hell to someone like Joseph. And off he goes into Egypt, 17 years of age, betrayed by his brothers, much in the shadow of Jesus. And McGee says, "I, I want to tell that teenager as he meanders over to Dauphin, unsuspecting, like an animal headed to the trap or the slaughter, I want to say, don't go to Dolphin. Don't go there. Joseph does not get a glimpse, says McGee, of an army ready to protect him. Rather, his brothers want to kill him. He ends up being thrown in a pit and sold as a slave. And he happens to be God's man. McGee puts it this way, so apropos. Where are the chariots of fire now? And he says, just because you cannot see chariots of fire doesn't mean they are not there. Listen, they are there. I see more evidence, says McGee, of the hand of God in the life of Joseph than I see in the life of Elisha, who performed miracles. Yet God never appeared to Joseph, never performed a miracle for him. But I see that God used this seeming disaster as Joseph recognized it later on at the end of his life when he said to his brothers, what you intended for evil God turned it around for good. Amen? So sometimes when we read stories like this, we're like, well, I can't tell you when I saw chariots of fire, but I can tell you about betrayal. I can tell you about a tough situation, a tough relationship, a tough diagnosis, this or that. What now? Here's what now. God works all things together for good, to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. Now, I wish it were less bumpy at times for all of us. Joseph, if you interviewed him in the middle of time in prison and falsely accused, he probably would have told you, this is tough. I have no idea what God's doing. But Joseph remained faithful and God turned it around. There's a song out there right now. He turned it around and It makes me think of that song. So the king of Israel, when he saw this army, you know, pretty much like, you know, lambs to the slaughter, he said to Elisha, my father, that's an address of respect to the prophet, although he wasn't really a respectful guy. Shall I kill them? Notice the double emphasis, verse 21. Shall I kill them? Thank you very much for bringing the enemy. (laughs) We're gonna take them out, right? Should I kill? And he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those who have, been, who have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, notice, that they may eat and drink and go to their master or go back to their king. And someone in the crowd might say, But Elisha, they wanted to kill you and you're being nice. And I could hear Elisha say, If it were me, oh, never mind, take them out. Yeah, that's right. They wanted to do me harm. But he doesn't do that. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set bread, bread and water before them. So he prepared, the king did a great feast for them. Final verse. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the marauding bands uh, of Arameans or Syrians did not come again into the land of Israel. Now there are gonna be other attacks, but I think it, this is specific to the raiders or the marauding bands. It ended their time of coming into the land. I want you to imagine the uh, Syrian army heading back to their king. Oh, hey, all right, you're back. Uh, Where's the sword with the blood of Elisha on it? Well, uh, where's his body? Where's his head? Give me evidence that you took him out. You, You surely have him in the wagon or something in the chariot. No. Well, what happened? Well, we got blinded, and we ended up in Samaria, and we, we had pizza. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And even some cream puffs for dessert. And the king might ask, do you have a doggy bag? Anything that you brought back? <laughs> right? Now, the power of this is seen in Romans 12, which is where we're going to end today. Turn all the way to the book of Romans. And rather than killing the enemy, they killed them with kindness. Might sound a little bit strange in a back and forth war setting like this. How we interpret this, how we apply it, I think on a spiritual level, we can apply it this way. This is Romans 12, 17. It says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Wow, there's no loopholes there at all. There's a never and there's anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, and this is from the Proverbs, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we as the church do exactly what the world does, every time someone says something against us, wrongs us, Etc. If they say something and we say, Well, let me tell you something. And we go down, and and in the moment it can feel kind of good to give them a little zinger. Right here. But afterwards we have to ask the question, what did that accomplish for the gospel? When Jesus went around the planet in his earthly ministry, he went around doing good. And yes, he called out hypocrisy and all of that sin. But he was so gentle with people. He's good. Lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes and people that the religious elite said, don't you know who that is? Why are you letting her touch you, etc.? Oh, don't touch that leper. You'll be unclean. Jesus was like, no. I came here on a mission to do good. Please listen. And the goal of the Christian life is that you and I, as a community of believers and as individuals, become more like the one who saved us so we can be his hands and his feet in the world. And I'm not telling you that any of this is easy stuff. It goes totally against all of my natural fleshly proclivities. However, this is the word of the Lord. And so when I wake up on any given day, I have to pray, oh Lord, open my eyes. Because I have to see the way you see. Otherwise, I'm not going to navigate this life very well for the kingdom of God. Open my eyes. Father, as we bow our hearts as a congregation, we bow in humility before you. We thank you for this story of spiritual insight into the battle where the enemy normally sets up camp. We need to know that. We need to not give him a foothold, Lord, we need to move in ways that close the door to the enemy, whether that's through forgiveness, whether that's through resolving bitterness or conflict, whether that's, I know your people can fill in the blanks, Lord. Would you make us more wise and discerning as it relates to this battle? Would you open our eyes that we might see things more clearly the way we ought? Would you forgive us for times that we've been kind of blind to? Maybe even ways that we look at things, Lord. Thank you that you're so merciful and so patient with me, with us. With your head and heart bowed, I have a question for you. It's a simple one. Do you know the Lord? Are you on his team? Are you part of his kingdom? Have you made him the king and Lord of your life? If you haven't, this would be a great time to trust in the one who died for you, rose for you, loves you. You have to have a moment when you repent of your sin and say, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm not following the ways of the world anymore. I'm going to follow you. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but crying out to him to save you is where it starts. Maybe you would say, I'm a, I'm a believer, but I've been off track, and my eyes have been mostly shut to spiritual warfare, to the things of God, even to realities of my own waywardness. A good prayer would be open my eyes, Lord, that I may see. And Lord, for this precious congregation, I just want to rejoice in what you're doing in us and through us all around the world as we think about radio ministry, missionaries, uh, local ministry that occurs. I lift up our Spanish service that will happen uh, after for those brothers and sisters to continue to fight the good fight. They are sensing spiritual warfare and it's real. And we do have an enemy. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so help us to put on the full armor have confidence in our God and press on by faith. We love you, Lord. I ask your blessing on the precious folks that are here and those who have joined us via live stream or who will watch this later. May you be glorified in our response to your word. Just take a moment. Just kind of slow it down just for a second. Let the spirit of the living God speak to you. Let His truth go down deep into your soul. How will you act upon what you've heard?